I'm back, only two weeks removed from being here, but when we signed up for these uh, Red Letter Series messages, um, I grabbed two that I loved, which was John 15 and John 17, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, <clears throat> we have some notes to come out, and uh, there's some folks sharing the notes if you'd like to have a copy of the notes to follow along as I teach this passage this morning. Uh, we're not going to read the whole passage all the way to begin with, but we will read it as we go along. And um, before we do, um, let's just bow and uh, turn our, our minds and hearts to uh, God and His Word this morning. Our Father, we're so grateful for Your work in our lives, for the opportunity we have to be um, the hallmark of Your creation, that You have made us in your own image, and you have put your impression upon us, and you have reached out to us in our need, in our desperate need, and you have called us your children. Thank you, Father, that um, we have so many wonderful relationships by way of being your child, being your bride, but also, Father, being um, ones that you intercede for as our great high priest. And as we come to this passage this morning, Father, we pray that you would be once again lifted up by the teaching of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John 17 is the priest. And the photo you see in front of you, that is also the priest. Um, about 16 years ago, when I was much younger and much better shape, um, for a graduation uh, trip, my son Phil, who's with me this morning, um, he and I decided to take a multi-day camp out uh, down in the Appalachian Trail, down south of Storch Draft, Virginia. And this mountain, um, basically, uh, Phil would say it didn't kick his butt, but it kicked my butt. <laughs> um, this is, uh, if you look at the next slide, you kind of come in about where that arrow is, and there's a, uh, a parking place there, and you kind of work your way up, and you basically take uh, 4,100 4, feet of elevation gain in the space of four miles, which basically means you're doing a stair stepper uh, for about six hours, and that's with uh, unwisely about a 60-pound pack. That was uh, brutal. I've since learned how to become much lighter in my camping uh, equipment. That, that was not a good decision. Um, but it was a great time, and if you go to the next page, you see that 4.4 miles there at the parking lot, reminding you of how far you have to go. And, um, and again, it was, uh, it was definitely worth the trip. Um, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that um, there's a place right about where that arrow is or somewhere in that vicinity where there is a lookout. And at that lookout, that's what you see. Amazing, beautiful, beautiful splendor of God's creation looking east across the Shenandoah Valley and and uh, it was worth the hike. It really was. It was a, an amazing trip. We, uh, we had some detours along the way. But um, I think Phil and I would say it was an epic experience. Um, we also have had some camping trips, and my four boys are sitting there, and now that's expanded to four son-in-laws and now four grandsons. And we have started a tradition a few years ago going on a camp out. And so the... Uh, the um, the topic of what is an epic experience came up in our last camp out uh, last year. And, um, and Phil and I would say, and something that he and I shared, that that was an epic experience. And there's lots of stories to go along with it. 
But there's something about that place to me that's special. It's kind of like that first picture, it's the view of that priest. That, that, that's the name of the mountain. That's one of those mountains that bows down in worship, which is kind of cool when I think how much it conquered me. But, but it's, it's an amazing thing to look at it from a distance. If you go down Route 29 around Lovingston, if you look west, you might see the tops of it, and it stands out pretty pretty high. But it's also a view from the priest, that picture that you see there that kind of impacts you. And I think of that when I think of the priest in John 17. There is a view of that priest that we see in this passage. There's also the view from the perspective of the priest that we see as well. Go back to our setting. The likely route that Jesus, when the disciples left the upper room, and when we talked a few weeks ago in John 15, they left the upper room, and they probably left one of the southern gates of the city and moved around to the southeast and then to the north along the Kidron Valley. And it was a few miles walk. It was uphill as well, maybe not as steep as what Phil and I experienced. But remember, this was a grief-stricken moment. These guys had taken in very heavy information, and they're now hearing Jesus continue to teach. And last week, Dave did a great job talking about the Holy Spirit and this new revelation, this new information that they're trying to take in in the midst of their grief. And I think that as we come to chapter 17, we're approaching just as you see chapter 18 when he finishes this discourse, they're about ready to turn up the hill to the Mount of Olives and this is the Mount of Olives looking back towards the east side of Jerusalem. And there probably is somewhere in the vicinity of what we call the Golden Gate. Of course, this is not the wall that was there in Jesus' day. Um, but, or not all of it anyway. But I have this picture in my mind's eye that as Jesus is coming to this place, He's, he's getting ready to anticipate Gethsemane. But he's also maybe looking up the hill as he lifts his eyes to the Father and he's looking at that gate, the gate that just earlier that week, as Tom said, he had passed through on a donkey. And people had lauded him and thrown down their clothes and their palm branches in his way. But I think Jesus is looking past that. I think he's looking to something far greater. I think he's thinking of a time when one day Zechariah says he will come back. His feet will touch that Mount of Olives. It will split in two. And there will be a way made that he will enter in and he will become the ruler of the earth for a thousand years. I think that this is not the passages that follow. This is not Gethsemane and the anguish. This is Jesus praying to the Father in a, in a hopeful and positive and victorious perspective. And so we come <clears throat> to the passage and we see it's broken down and, and maybe one of the things is this is a very familiar passage where there's a little, some little you know, moving about and I've tried to distill it down because it doesn't really kind of flow beginning then. It's kind of a stream of consciousness in a way. But we do see very clearly that in this prayer, in this address to the Father, and I think it's not like stopping to close my eyes. I think Jesus is lifting his eyes up and, he, and the f- disciples are falling behind and he's just 
is overwhelmed with this sense to intercede and to pray to the Father. In verses 1 to 5, we see that he prays about his glory. In verses 6 to 19, he prays about his guys. I'm calling them his guys. I got my guys here. But uh, I think that's the sense of that familial feel that Jesus had for these men. He's already called them friends in the upper room. And now, I think he prays for them very passionately, knowing that they're is going to be some slip-ups on their part. And then in verses 20 26, he prays for the generations to come. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. Let's back up to show you my sense that this is a a hopeful and positive prayer. Verse 32 of chapter 16 says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These things Jesus spoke. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus prays to the Father, and he has on his mind this concept of glory. His and the Father's. Glory, <clears throat> both the, uh, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, has this sense of weight. Weight, something that's weighty. And I kind of like theologically give you a de- definition here. It's not an exact sense of it. But it's the sense that if you take this repeated use of this word, Glory is the uniquely honorable attributes of a person or thing that are weighty and recognizable to the extent that they leave a powerful impression. That's what Jesus had done to these men. He had displayed his glory to them, the glory of the Father. Now, he is looking not only to the Father's glory, but he's looking to his own in a sense, these, <clears throat> this, uh, this passage is Jesus giving an accounting of his stewardship. And I had never seen this before until I studied this again. I think Jesus is looking at all that the Father had distributed to him. He's looking all at the humbling that he went through. That is, that he veiled his glory. Except that time on the Mount of Transfiguration when, wow, the, the disciples were kind of knocked back. They were the ones that were up there with him. And they recognized, hey, this is really who this person is. He's God in the flesh. But Jesus had humbled himself and he had set aside that full display of his glory. And he's looking forward. He's looking past the cross. He's looking past the resurrection. He's looking at the place where he will be once again in the presence of the Father. And their fellowship will be 
restored in the most dynamic of ways as it was from the, the very beginning. And this is Jesus giving an account of his ministry. There, the, the word given or gavest appears 14 times in this chapter. There's a sense of that stewardship. It's also Jesus looking at work that's accomplished. He says, this is eternal life. Well, excuse me, back up to verse 2. He says, even as thou hast given me authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given me, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is a finished work. This is Jesus in his mind's eye, looking past all the suffering and looking down the corridor of time to what the cross is meant to accomplish. The cross wasn't only meant to wipe away sins. It wasn't only make us clean. It was to extend to us His own glory, the glory He shared with the Father, that we would one day be with Him. We'll talk, talk about that a little bit more in a bit. I think it's this sense in verse 5, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is Jesus looking back at the glory that he had as an equal member of the Trinity. But it's also looking forward, I think, in the way that Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, where <clears throat> you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is Jesus looking forward to a return to glory, not just as a member of the Trinity, but as a man who's accomplished the Father's mission. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? that Christ is looking to be glorified as the God-man, once again with the Father. In verses 6 to 19, we see His guys. We see there's some things in this passage, and we kind of pull them out. There's things that Jesus did for these men as a result of the stewardship responsibility that the Father placed into His hands. And the first thing is He did in verse 6, He manifested the Father's name to them. That is, he made known the Father's reputation in a fuller and clearer way. Of course, we can look at the Old Testament and the Scriptures that they had for them to see that. But remember, John 1 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. That was a whole different experience of the Father's name, the Father's attributes and reputation, His renown. In verse 8, he also gave them the Father's words. There were new words that Jesus spoke. Uh, remember when, uh, I think it's in Luke 4, people were marveled after, after his message, his opening message of his ministry, and they said, who's spoken like this man? The words that fall from his, gracious words that fall from his lips. There was something new and unique about the words the Father gave him, verse 8. The words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. They received them. They truly understood them that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. And then verse 12, he kept them in the Father's name. 
says, while I was this with them, I was keeping them on in, in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This, this experience of keeping them in the Father's name is that idea that, that they have this, um, this responsibility to walk as he walked. And of course, they didn't do that perfectly. We know that. But they did try. They did, they did follow after Jesus. And they were kept in the Father's name by the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified. Jesus set himself apart to special and holy mission for the sake of his disciples. I actually put a note down further. really should be here in, um, in, uh, in C below. You notice this, this concept of being sanctified or Christ sanctifying himself. It also has this idea in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul said to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching for in doing so, you ensure salvation to those who hear you. This kind of has this idea that there is and, and also in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, and verse 20, 21, this idea that there's vessels to honor, there's vessels to dishonor. But if a man sets himself apart as a vessel of honor, a choice vessel, then he's useful to the Father. If a man cleanses himself from these things. There's this idea, not that Jesus had any sin to, to, to cleanse himself from, but there's this idea that what we do affects other people. And we have to set ourselves apart so that we can benefit other people. And Jesus did that so consistently and thoroughly for the twelve. How, how do they respond? Well, verse 6, they kept His words. They held on to them tightly. As uh, Luke chapter 8, the, the parable of the sowers, they grabbed hold and they tenaciously held the words so they could bear fruit with perseverance. They came to know that everything of Christ came from the Father. Some of that they only recently understood in the upper room, right? Jesus explaining that whole relationship and filling it out in kind of more detail. But they realized that no one could do these things. You are the Son of God, they declared when he asked, who do you say that I am? Number three, they had received understood and believed. Notice verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything that thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. Now on the surface, that may seem not to be a remarkable thing, right? I mean, that's just what it means to be a follower of Christ. Those are kind of the basic things, right? But what's remarkable is when you think that at this moment where Jesus is getting ready to lay himself down after three years of committed, nonstop ministry, that only a few people besides these 11 men had done these things, that they had received and understood and believed. How many was in that upper room? At Pentecost, 120 people. 
And what's more remarkable is the group of people, the mass of people, the multitude that would surely hours from now be yelling crucify him, some of those same people were probably people that saw his miracles, experienced his blessing, saw what he had done, heard his words, yet they would not received them. They've not understood them. They've not believed them. Even those that should have known better, that should have seen the signs and attributed them to his deity. Well, here's some requests for his guys. He requested some things to the Father. First of all, in verse 11, to keep them in your name so that they would be one. Father, I've kept them but now I'm leaving. You keep them by the Spirit in your name. Keep them collected around the things that are matter, the things that are good and pure and righteous, things that are like your reputation, God. Let that mark their lives and their reputation. And in doing so, that they will be one. Look at verse 11. I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we, were, we are one. There is this bridge between this request and the one we'll look at next in verse 15. There's this sense of that they now, they now understand the interdependent nature of Father, Son, and the Helper, the Holy Spirit. That there is this interdependent unity as the Godhead works out the works of of salvation and sanctification and fruit bearing and all the things that the Trinity does in concert with one another in perfect unity and harmony. And Christ prays that they would fully enter into that, that they would fully connect to every member of the Trinity. In verse 15, he asked them to keep them from the evil one. It says, <clears throat> I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. You see, these men will move forward in unity. They will move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be hated. Jesus warned them of that. Men will seek to kill them. And they actually, in the end, did. And the evil one wants to stop this before it ever gets started. And he works on them even as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's he's disengaging them. As he said, they'll be scattered. But he will restore them and build them up. Keep them from the evil one. Then he, verse 17, he asks one more request. Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is is truth and uh this is to be sanctified or set apart in the truth it's also to be sanctified by the truth but especially in the truth that that would be what they live and breathe that it would it would govern their thinking their thoughts their words their activities that they'd be set apart to ministry verses 20 26 jesus also prays for his generations to come. His generations to come. His glory, his guys, his generations to come. That is, he's praying for us. 
by extension. In that moment, Jesus can see the mass of his followers that will one day come because of the preaching of the disciples. And he looks down the corridor of time, or outside of time, depending on what he was doing with his deity at that moment. I don't know. But he sees it all. And he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. These requests, these first two, there's kind of clauses that follow after clauses, and they kind of lead out of one to the other with purpose statements. Christ wants us to be one so that they would be, that we would be in them, in the Father, in the Son, in us, as he said, that they may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe. There's something markedly unique. There's something even glorious about the church of Jesus Christ. That we, when we function together, when every part plays its part, as Ephesians 4 says, there's growth and there's beauty and there's fruitfulness, as we looked at, and there's uniqueness. There's organizations. They claim to have great culture. I had to go through a training at, at work this week and was talking about culture and how every organization knows that's a key to effective functioning. And they're trying to come up with it, but they don't have the dynamic that really makes it work. They don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of each one of us. And we see the Scripture talks about these, these pictures. We're a body interdependently working together, each having a different part and function. We're a building with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, First Peter says, and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're growing up to this glorious dwelling, this building before God, this great temple. And then we're a bride. Again, the intimacy we looked at in chapter 15. That there's this, there's this openness and this connection that we have and it ought to be one of the most powerful dynamics of evangelism that when the world looks at us from the outside and they see our unity, when they see our love, that should draw them. It should make them hungry to know what is going on in there. That's Jesus' prayer. He says, and this is a, a, a remarkable thing in verse 22 and 23. He says, and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. In them, and thou, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected or matured in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them. Do you know that how, <clears throat> how we show brotherly kindness and love to one another is either by its virtue going to attract the world to us or by its lack is going to repel. We're either going to be the salt that makes an effect upon the corruption of this world or we're going to be the salt that gets trampled under it. And it all starts on the inside with you and me and us. And Jesus has this great prayer and desire that the world would know that the, that the Godhead loves them. And the way they'll know that is by how we live together. And finally, 
He prays that we would be with him to see his glory. What an amazing thing. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. What a powerful me. That's, that's a verse to meditate on. Is that, that Jesus wants us to see his glory. There's a song, show me your glory. Man, I get chills when I hear that song. Show me your glory. And one day we will. First John says, when he calls us up, when we see him, we will, what? Be like him. We will be glorified in that moment, for we'll see him just as he is. I think one of the most amazing things about the prophecy that's yet to, that is yet to come the things that have yet to be fulfilled, is that it is going to be glorious. The whole glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And all men will worship Him. All men. There's a kingdom coming when every knee will bow. Physically, on this earth, Jesus will be the ruler from Jerusalem. What a wonderful day. There's glories beyond that, that rain that run into eternity. <clears throat> and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Our mind, our imagination strains to begin to think about how glorious that will be. And in the middle, in the greatest of all that glory, whatever is created and yet to come in a new heaven and a new earth will be the Lord Jesus himself. Amazing thing when you think about it. This is not just God before the foundation of the world. This is God who became flesh and is now glorified and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where we end. As a reminder here, we turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're reminded that he's not done praying for us. That was just the beginning. He's been praying for the last 2,000 plus years. He's praying for us today. Hebrews chapter 7, it says, And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Do you know what that says? That means Jesus will have a priestly function yet to come still. He holds it permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our, our Lord is a praying Lord. He's a praying God. He's praying for us. What an encouragement. I've, been, <clears throat> I've read this book. I've recommended it. Now we're using it in our small group. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I highly recommend it. I want to read what the author says about this passage in closing. He says, The salvation Christ brings is pantelis, 
the Greek word. It is comprehensive. In the flow of thought in Hebrews 7, there appears to be a special focus on the time aspect of this salvation. Because Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and continues forever in it, unlike previous priests who died, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Our presence in God's good favor and family will never sputter and die like an engine running out of gas. We all tend to have some small pocket of a life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God, believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven, but we sincerely believe our sins, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, it seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. And he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. But how do we know? The text tells us he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's heavenly intercession is the reason we know that he will save us to the uttermost. Here's what that means. The divine Son never ceases, note the word always, to bring his atoning life, death, and resurrection before his Father in a moment-by-moment way. Christ turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness, wrote Calvin, to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. We, do we realize what this means? Note the blessed realism of the Bible. This is the explicit acknowledgement that we Christians are ongoing sinners. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. What encouragement. Tremendous passage. John 17, a view of the priest. As we look back and picture it in our mind's eye, seeing Jesus lifting his gaze toward heaven. But also an amazing view if we look through Jesus' eyes to what he sees. He sees us clean and righteous and holy. And he intercedes for us day by day, hour by hour, Reminding the Father that we are His. And in them, Lord, bless these words. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for Your work, for the positive, optimistic, courageous, victorious view that You had of us, that You had of those 11 men, knowing their weakness, knowing that... And in just a few hours, they'll fall asleep. They won't be able to watch even an hour. They won't be able to intercede for you. 
And so often, Lord, our intercessions are so weak and frail, and yet we have an intercessor, a great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for your words of encouragement. Thank you so much that you prayed for us before we were even here. Thank you, Lord, that you pray for us even now. Help us to walk in these words of uplift and encouragement. Help us, Father, to be in you and walk this way in the world as well. We praise in Christ's name.